And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, please follow all of my daily, sometimes minute by minute, uh, news updates and commentary on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. And the reason why I ask you to follow is not because I am dying for more followers. I think that that ship has sailed. I think I'm going to be stuck between twenty and 25,000 forever, and that's okay. Um, it's not that I'm looking for more followers. It's that many of these stories and historical events and facts that I talk about in this edition of Novak Now and many others, I link the, to them and I put the references to them and, cite, and the citations for them on my Twitter feed. So it's not just about uh, gathering more fans. It's about making sure that you have a chance to read up more about what I'm talking about in case I didn't explain it well enough or in case you weren't familiar with it. And also to fact check me. There may be things that I say that you don't think are true and, and you need to check up on me. All those things are fine to do at Jake, Jake NY is my Twitter feed. Please follow that just to keep me honest and to uh, give yourself a little bit more material, hopefully interesting material to follow. I want to talk this week about the story that has been, I think, the number one story in America for the last 10 days or so and the important lessons for Jews and non-Jews and for everyone that maybe hasn't been attached to this story yet, even though a lot's been talked about. Of course, I'm talking about this whole GameStop mania stock market story. Now, I'm going to be using very few financial terms and stock market terms during the course of this edition of Novak. Now, I promise. However, there will be a few more of those than I usually uh, pepper in there. I think a lot of you listening, if you're, any, if you're anything like... Uh, most of the people I know in America over the last 10 days, 10 days you've probably seen more than enough uh, stories or, or heard on the radio or watched on TV explanations for what's going on and how, why the market is going so crazy in particular over this particular GameStop, uh, GameStop story. So for those of you, I apologize who have already had this explanation if I'm being a little too basic, but I will do that just for those of you who haven't followed it. But I'm not going to reiterate the whole story, but just to, to quickly summarize it, you have the situation where you had some big hedge fund millionaires and billionaires who had bet against GameStop, the company, as you know, GameStop is a retail um, company that sells video games and things like that. And there are these big millionaires and billionaires who bet against it. They're, they shorted the stock. Word got out that there, was the, that there were these big bets against it, and that provided an opportunity for ordinary investors, people like you and me who can just go online and buy or sell a stock, that made a big opportunity for them to buy the stock and to make a lot of money on it. And that's what's been going on. And of course, there's been a pushback against not only the hedge fund millionaires and billionaires, but against the regular people by those millionaires and billionaires who are costing them some money. So that, that's the story that's been going on. And of course, I want to talk about the important Jewish aspect to the story and what that teaches us about the wider understanding of things like anti-Semitism and things like our actual, our, the, the human nature that I think all humans have to respond to new and different things. Now, there is a big Jewish aspect to this story because so many of the names of the major players involved are, are Jewish. And they're not just Jewish names, they really are Jewish people. You have, for example, one of the big hedge funds that took a huge bet against GameStop and put the, and got themselves into huge trouble when people started to buying up buying up the shares is Melvin Capital which is owned by a Jewish man named Plotkin. Then you have 
People like Stephen Cohen, for those of you who are sports fans, you know him as the guy who just bought the New York Mets. He's worth $14 billion. We don't know if he personally put a lot of money against GameStop like Plotkin did and Melvin Capital and some of his other hedge fund uh, colleagues and I should say peers. But he became a very public defender of those hedge fund millionaires and billionaires when other people were trashing them. Another Jewish name in this story is David Portnoy. He is the founder of Barstool Sports, which is mostly just an internet company that is a place for people to talk sports and report on sports. He's a wildly successful guy, wildly persuasive, very, very successful online in his persuasiveness and his ability to attract followers and supporters. He's done some good things over the last year, including raising over $33 million so far for small businesses that have been unfairly shut down while big businesses get to stay open uh, during the COVID uh, crisis. Um, he's been very outspoken and effective, not just outspoken, but effective in helping them. So those are just three of the names. And I'm going to focus on Stephen Cohen and David Portnoy because what's been going on between them is eerily familiar and eerily similar to something that happened six, seven years ago between two other Jewish men. What's going on now between David Portnoy and Stephen Cohen, although it's taking a pause now because it looks like Stephen Cohen has decided to exit the arena here. But on Twitter, the two of them were having a heated, heated debate for days over the story about GameStop, with David Portnoy taking the side of the regular mom and pop, regular retail investors, as they call them, as they call us. I'm, I'm, I'm one as well, I, although I have not invested one way or the other in GameStop, by the way, full disclosure. I have not gotten involved in that. Um, but David Portnoy taking their, their side and Stephen Cohen literally taking the side of, the, of his fellow hedge fund millionaires and billionaires. And Portnoy and Cohen were going back and forth, Portnoy saying that these hedge fund millionaires and billionaires don't deserve to be protected or sympathized with. They've made it there because they're trying to stop people from buying up the stock by manipulating their ability to buy it. And Stephen Cohen saying, hey, these people are just trying to make a living, which of course is not working out very well for Stephen Cohen because when billionaires start to cry poverty or ask for some types of sympathy in public, that's never a good idea. That's a hot tip I'm going to give you right now. Doesn't mean that millionaires and billionaires don't deserve legal protections when they are legal. But for the case of just sympathy, um, you know, I, it's, it's not a great idea to ask for sympathy as opposed to it, it just legal protection when, when it's warranted. Um, it looks like Stephen Cohen over the last couple of days finally decided to, to stop on Twitter with, you know, with his battle with David Portnoy. We'll see if it resumes. I'm happy to report, though, and this is not coming from a point of negativity or pessimism or all those kinds of things, but I'm happy to report that neither Portnoy nor Cohen, as far as I know, I don't know if I've read every single tweet, they've gone back and forth with each other, but I'm pretty sure I would have found out if this happened. Neither one of them have brought up the fact that they're both Jewish or made any kind of comments about their ethnicity in this battle. Now, the reason why I'm saying that, again, is not because I'm worried that that would happen every time two Jewish people argue. It's just that this argument, basically one in favor of a stock and one against the stock, or at least one in favor of buying and one, and one in favor of selling, is eerily similar to a very ugly, unfortunately, a very ugly argument that was very public about six or seven years ago when two other billionaires got into a tremendous fight over a different stock. And the name of that stock six or seven years ago was called Herbalife. And Herbalife is a company that's still around. It's, it's a diet system that you can, you know, you can buy uh, and follow. It's popular with certain uh, communities here in the United States, and it was then as well. 
And a billionaire Jewish hedge fund guy named Bill Ackman, who is a brilliant guy and has also done some very good things in his life as well, was betting against the stock. And he wasn't just betting against the stock. He was going on television, and in this case, CNBC, my, and I was working there at the time as an executive producer, not on this particular program where he appeared, but I was working at CNBC at the time. He got on the phone. He did something what we call a phoner. That is when a guest doesn't appear on the set with the anchor person. That is when a guest is not on camera somewhere. They just call in. And sometimes phoners can be actually a great media device because it adds a level of sometimes urgency to it. Like, oh, this is such an important thing I want to talk to you about that I couldn't wait to come into the studio. I couldn't wait to get in front of a camera somewhere. I had to call in. <laughs> it's, uh, sometimes it's used for dramatic effect, but sometimes it really is because they didn't have time to come in and it's important to get their story out there or at least important to them. So Bill Ackman was on the, sort of the midday program as a phoner guest talking down Herbalife, trashing the company, saying it wasn't a good company and all of that. And suddenly another phoner guest appeared on the program, and that would be Carl Icahn, who's known as a billionaire activist investor, which usually when you say activist investor, that's somebody who thinks a stock is not valued high enough, gets involved somehow, buys up a lot of shares of it so they can get their own people on the board so they can get new management to bring higher value to a stock that they believe should be of higher value. That's been Carl Icahn's playbook, what I just described. That has been Carl Icahn's playbook for a long time. That is the way he has done things for quite some time. Um, So that's what happened six or seven years ago. Carl Icahn started calling up and saying he liked Herbalife and he had invested in it and he didn't appreciate Bill Ackman going on CNBC trashing it. And their argument got more and more heated. And then at one point, Carl Icahn, who like Ackman was a Jewish man, in fact, Carl Icahn, from what I understand, his father was a chazan in a... Orthodox shul in Far Rockaway. But anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But my point being, he's definitely a Jewish guy. Carl Icahn used kind of an anti-Semitic slur against his fellow Jew, Bill Ackman, during this whole live argument on international television. He, I, I don't want to repeat exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of Bill Ackman being whiny and being like a little whiny Jewish boy. It was really, really shocking to hear and upsetting. And... The end of that story, years later, Bill, it, took, it took more than a year, it took more than a couple of years, I believe, for Bill Ackman finally to c- cry uncle on Herbalife because the same thing happened to him that's happening in a in, in, in much larger degree. But in a smaller scale, it happened to Bill Ackman. He, he, he lost money on Herbalife because Icon saw the opportunity that these regular investors are seeing now in GameStop, Icon saw in Herbalife. He saw that these big hedge fund guys, you know, he's, he's a big private equity guy himself, but he saw that his, at least one of his peers in Bill Ackman was betting so heavily against it that there was a good and easy opportunity to make a lot of money by buying it up, and that's exactly what happened. Icon won that battle financially, although on an ethical level, especially since he descended into using slurs against a fellow Jew, I think he lost on a moral and ethical level. Um, both Carl Icahn and Bill Ackman have plenty of good things to, to be said about them on other parts of their resume, but that wasn't a good day for them. Because, as I've often said, there's nothing wrong with shorting a stock. There's nothing wrong with a hedge fund deciding it wants to bet against GameStop. There's nothing wrong with Bill Ackman deciding he wants to bet against Herbalife. There's nothing wrong with a regular person doing that. The problem is, and something that really shocks me that it still goes on, the problem is, it's one thing to short a stock, it's another to go on television, it's another thing to go on CNBC and really trash a company where people are working. <laughs> you know, I mean, to go on television and say this is a bad place, that there were people who were working and are still working at Herbalife or in Herbalife whose 
who are not millionaires and are not billionaires. And I don't know if it's such a great idea to go on television and trash a company in that way, unless you think they're killing people, unless you think that they're committing a serious crime that will hurt even more people. But you want to short a stock, you want to make money on a, on a stock that you think is going to go down, you know, as we say in Yiddish, hey, you know, to, you know, to, your, to your health, whatever, you should live and be well, it's fine. But the thing is, I don't know if in the past that was something that anyone would have ever thought of doing is going on television and, and trashing a company the way Ackman did and the way some people are doing with GameStop or have been doing with GameStop. So I'm relieved that David Portnoy and Stephen Cohen never got to the point of using Jewish slurs against each other because they are both Jewish people. But my concern is that that was where it was going to go. Now, what I think a lot of other people have a concern is when they hear all the Jewish names, whether it's Plotkin or Cohen or Portnoy, or there's a few others, by the way, that are involved heavily one way or the other in this GameStop story, I think a lot of people are thinking, oi, 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 this will be another thing that causes anti-Semitism in the world or that makes the anti-Semites happy. Well, if you haven't guessed it yet, I'm using what has become the biggest story in America over the last, the most enduring story in America over the last 10 days or so as a segue into discuss that mentality. The mentality that many of us have, and I don't think this is an evil mentality, and I don't think people should be ashamed to have it, but I want to try to, as I say, disabuse you of it. We have, uh, many of us have this mentality, and it's not just Jews, who believe that when a Jewish person is involved in 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 a scandal situation, or even a situation that's just a little scary, for a lot of people, this GameStop story is scary to see because it's new and different. People automatically assume this is fuel for the fire. This is some kind of shot in the arm for anti-Semites and anti-Semitism. I want to disabuse you of that. Now, the first thing I want to say to explain myself about that is first, just because, and I'm going to prove it to you, just because bad things that an individual Jewish person or group do don't cause or even advance anti-Semitism is not a reason to do bad things. Okay, if you're only doing good things or if you're only trying to hide or not doing bad things because you're afraid of what the anti-Semites say, you're you're doing it wrong, as they say, as the kids say today. You should be doing good things because we all are required to do good things. And you should not do bad things because we are required not to be to be doing bad things. Okay, I know that sounds like fifth grade, uh, you know, five year old kindergarten uh, philosophy here, but it's still pretty darn good. We don't do or good or bad things because they're gonna because it may or may not help anti semites. We do good and bad things because we do good things because we should be doing good things. And if we're doing bad things, it's because you know we failed in 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 our in our, in our mission as human beings. I, 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 again, we we live in a world where a lot of us believe that there are some merit based account somewhere that people who hate others, and I mean, by that I mean really hate, I'm not talking about people who are defending themselves against attacks, but people who hate others for their religion or their skin color, there is no rhyme or reason to that. This is something that is tribal. It may be in the DNA of a lot of us. It isn't based on fact or the merits or demerits. It's never based on all those things. Uh, I don't quote lessons I learned in college very often because I really continue to believe that the lessons I learned in my home and in particular in my high school were much more valuable than the things I learned in my college classroom. But I did learn some good lessons there. And one of them was in a course with a professor named Jack Wertheimer, who was still teaching, by the way, 
who uh, had a class years and years ago. I was in college a long time ago, folks. Uh, almost, I graduated almost 30 years ago. Uh, but he had a class on anti-Semitism. And most of it was really the history of anti-Semitism. It was, a, it was a history course after all. But we also talked about the psychology of anti-Semitism in the class. And I think he made a very good argument and, a, and, and had readings and, and proofs and stuff to back him up that anti-Semitism is not based on any actions that Jews do or do not do. It's uncanny, by the way, if you ever take a look at anti-Semitic literature, I mean, real anti-Semitic literature, I don't suggest you do it on a full stomach. But if you ever look at it from the stuff that you see today, maybe on the internet, or the stuff that was around hundreds of years ago, you'll notice two things. One, none of them have like a set of bullet points of events that had happened either in history at that time, if you're talking about old, older anti-Semitic literature, or today's anti-Semitic literature. You, you'll never see a laundry list of actual stories where they say, you see, this Jewish person did this, this Jewish person did that, and it's, and it's a link to an actual story or an actual event, if it's on the internet today, or, or it's a, something that's referred to. You'll also not see, you'll also very often see stuff that's just made up. Weird things. Talk, they talk about uh, you know, a, a, an inherent evil in the Jewish soul or that we don't have a soul. Or they'll talk about stuff that has nothing to do with anything. Um, Jews are coming, you know, are, 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 have, a, have, a, have a plot to, to do some X, Y, and Z. And they'll refer to things that may have happened in the news, but not things that, that we know that Jews did. They'll say like, well, there was a flood somewhere and the Jews did it. I'm talking about literal stories where we know a Jewish criminal was involved. That's not something that you see all that much in anti-Semitic. So it's actually a good proof for what they're going for here. It's really just a visceral hatred in their DNA. It's got nothing to do with facts. I would even make the argument that when Jews do good things, it angers anti-Semites and gets them riled up even more. But that's another discussion. Again, the point being, if you think that when a Jew is caught in a controversial situation or a scandal or commits a crime, it helps anti-Semitism, it creates more anti-Semitism. It's just factually wrong. That's not to excuse the person, the Jewish person who's committed a crime. It's just not the reason why we should be upset. We shouldn't be upset because it's going to help the anti-Semites. We should be upset because someone has committed a crime. And we want to hold our, our communities, whether they're Jewish or not, to a higher standard. We should be angry that, someone has commit, that people commit crimes one against the other, whether they're Jews, not Jews, or anything else like that. Again, this is, this is kindergarten-level philosophy, but it's, it's important for us to remember. I think a lot of us forget some of these very basic things sometimes. So I think that there is a knee-jerk reaction that a lot of Jews have when they see stories like this to worry about it becoming some kind of a fuel for anti-Semitism. And it's not the way we should be thinking because it's just not true. And second, I think that there's something that a lot of people have, whether they're Jewish or not, and this is something that we see a lot in the news media where, again, and I've been pushing back against this in the last several editions of Novak Now, I think that there's a knee-jerk negativity, worry, uh, alarmism that is attached to every new and different event that happens in the world. Oh, uh, today was the first time uh, that, uh, a, you know, a, a lizard uh, was born that, that was bigger than two pounds or something like that. This must be the end of the world. I mean, people have a this must be the end of the world reaction to new and different things all the time. So they're looking at the story with GameStop and they're like, that's it. Another Great Depression is happening. We're going to have to live in a hole in the ground somewhere. I mean, this is exactly, a lot of people have this reaction. I think this is a little bit of something that we see a lot in the Jewish community, but I think a lot of other 
ethnic groups are guilty of this kind of stuff because I think it's actually just a human response that some of us have. And maybe because Jews talk about it a little bit more, we think of it as a Jewish kind of fear or guilt or pessimism or probably more likely because Jews have very often been victims of historical events, as we know. Maybe that's something that we we think is more of a Jewish thing. But I think it's actually something that a lot of people suffer from. And finally, I think that there's another problem that this GameStop story gives me an opportunity to discuss, which is what I call part two of the Stockholm Syndrome. Many of you know what the Stockholm Syndrome is. That is the term that is used to describe the scenario where people who are being taken hostage or people who are being somehow uh, victimized start to become identify with and maybe even like or, or, or really become connected with their attacker. Or in this case, in the, in the classic Stockholm Syndrome scenario, they become attached to their hostage taker. The classic Stockholm Syndrome scenario that the experts talked about when it was first put together in the 1970s by psychiatrists and other experts is, the, here's the scenario, uh, a bunch of bank robbers come into a bank, they're robbing the bank, all of a sudden the police surround the building, and instead of giving up, the bank robbers hold all the customers and workers inside the vault as a hostage, as hostages. And some of these hostages end up having some sort of delusional, for lack of a better word, affinity for their hostage takers. They start to feel for them. They start to think of them as sort of as being in the same boat. Now, that's what everyone talks about. When they talk about Stockholm Syndrome, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, that's, that's the thing where people start to like their hostage taker or start to love them. Okay. But there's another aspect of the Stockholm Syndrome scenario that people forget to talk about, I think, forget to talk about way too often, which is that Another part of it is that the hostage takers, some of the hostage takers start to blame each other for their predicament. In, in, in other words, instead of saying, hey, this bad bank robber came into the bank and held us all up at gunpoint and now we're hostages in this vault and God knows what's going to happen to us. Now they say, they say no, it's your fault. Uh, you over there with the fur hat and the big diamond earrings. If you hadn't been such a flashy dresser and had all that money, you wouldn't have angered these poor guys over here so much. It's, you started it. It's because of you. Now, this is a very important part of the Stockholm Syndrome discussion because we forget that victims often blame each other for their situation. And I think that we have seen this very often, sadly, in the state of Israel, where Jews who live in Tel Aviv, for example, often blame Jews who live on the West Bank and the settlements in the West Bank as somehow being responsible for terrorism against Jews, which is insane, it's both historically inaccurate and it's just wrong, but it's part of a, a larger Stockholm Syndrome that a lot of people are going through. And of course, this is just not, not just a Jewish phenomenon. We see this all the time, where people who are actually being equally victimized, or at least in some way being victimized at the same time, start to blame one another for the situation, as opposed to blaming the actual hostage takers or the actual attackers. And so we see this very, very often. And, um, you know, again, we have to be careful that in this GameStop story, if it ends up being really bad for the maybe millions of investors now, but certainly probably tens of thousands of investors who've gotten in on it and bought GameStop stock, stop stock, we have to be sure, we have to be hope, we have to, you know, I do whatever we can to make sure that some of the, they become victims, they don't end up blaming each other and end up saying this is some kind of Jewish thing. We want to avoid that because it's just not. There are too many Jewish people on all different sides of the story that to call it some kind of conspiracy is crazy. And again, there will be people who will do that, but it's not because 
the facts of the story led them to go to that place. It's just because they always wanted to blame the Jews for something that was in their DNA somehow. And there wasn't much that facts could do about it. The only thing that could have helped them was maybe some strong counseling, better upbringing. And in some cases, if they commit a crime, imprisonment. You know, a lot of us have this fantasy that if someone commits an anti-Semitic or an anti-Black or whatever anti-ethnicity hate crime, that they may go to jail and learn their lesson and become a better person when they come out of jail. That was the plot of a movie in the late 90s um, uh, called uh, American History X. And I'm sorry to say that doesn't happen too often. But let's hope that it does happen to some of the people who are punished. At least maybe it isn't in vain that they went to jail. Maybe they learned something. But the point is, that's not really where we're going with, with these kinds of things. It's not about the facts. The facts don't change the realities of hatred, of irrational hatred. You know, when we talk in the Talmud about the famous term sinat chinam, which means free hatred, and this is something actually my father taught me, and I really came to learn it on my own as well, which is the idea that we often talk about hatred, we say, we say a term called sinat chinam, and we say, well, that's baseless hatred, as if there's a kind of hatred that makes sense. What is hatred? It's not, again, hatred is not defending yourself against someone attacking you. Hatred is not pointing out the crimes of people who are committing crimes. That's not hatred. If it's factually based, or if the defense is warranted, it's not hatred. And anger is also not necessarily hatred. If you're angry at someone who's committed a crime against you, or a group that says bad things about you, that's also not hatred. A lot of times bigots walk around these days and say like, well, it's not, it's hatred to call me a bigot. Well, yeah, but you said something very bigoted. Now, maybe we should be more specific in our anger. If somebody says something bad, we shouldn't just just say, oh, John Smith over there is a jerk. We shouldn't just say that. We should say John Smith is a jerk for saying X, Y, and Z or for doing X, Y, and Z. But in my opinion, actually, and I think really what the Talmud was trying to teach us when it talked about Sinachinam being the reason, for example, for the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem, I think it really is saying that all hatred is baseless. Hatred isn't anything that actually does anything. Again, because when you understand that hatred is not defense, hatred is not anger, it's something that is just, I hate you. It's not really something that makes sense on a mental level, on a reality level. It doesn't lead to anything positive. So again, if your hatred of someone else is, is because, oh, you, you think it's because they stole from you, it's not that. And it doesn't even mean you have to have a great love for someone either. It's just the case of, no, you don't hate them. It's, you know, I, again, I know this is a cliche. It's hate the sin, not the sinner. You, know, it's, you hate that there's this horrible thing that they did, but it's not that you inherently hate the person. You think, oh, he was born and he was always bad. You know, the, the people can do good things and they can do bad things. And hating a person... Is, is ridiculous. Hating the thing that they did makes more sense. I think that that's something that our Christian brothers and sisters have picked up on a little bit better, maybe than Jewish people. But as usual, when it, they have a good idea, it usually kind of, <laughs> its origins are very often in, in Jewish teaching, which is why, you know, we're so joined, uh, our two faiths, whether we realize it or not. But anyway, folks, this GameStop story is going to lead to a lot of people to worry about anti-Semitism. It's going to lead a lot of people to get misunderstand a bunch of things about where uh, human human reactions to things i think we need to try to really work hard to avoid them not only because there are jews on all different sides of the story and there's no way you can cast jews as all villains and all heroes in the story no matter how it plays out because it hasn't ended yet this story as you as you as you may know but what we need to do is avoid things like what happened with the Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman argument. We need to avoid things like looking at everything that happens that's new and different as some kind of harbinger of the end of the world or the end of uh, peace for Jews. And we need to stop blaming one another 
when bad things happen. We must focus on the people who commit the actual crimes as the people who need to either be punished or set straight in some way. And we don't have to hate them and, and, and whatever community they come from in toto just because of that crime. We have to hate that crime and we have to make sure that we don't want that crime to be there. But hating a person or hating a group actually doesn't make sense. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.